Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Simon Anthony and Torty Talks. Alice Through the Looking Glass, Chapter 2 The Garden of Live Flowers. I should see the garden far better, said Alice to herself, if I could get to the top of that hill. And here's a path that leads straight to it. At least, no, it doesn't do that. After going a few steps along the path and turning several sharp corners, but I suppose it will at last. But how curiously it twists. It's more like a corkscrew than a path. Well, this turn goes to the hill, I suppose. No, it doesn't. This goes straight back to the house. Well, then, I'll try it the other way. And so she did wandering up and down and trying turn after turn, but always coming back to the house, do what she would. Indeed, once when she turned a corner rather more quickly than usual, she ran against it before she could stop herself. It's no use talking about it, Alice said, looking up at the house and pretending it was arguing with her. I'm not going in again yet. I know I should have to get through the looking-glass again, back into the old room, and there'd be an end to my adventures. So resolutely turning her back upon the house, she set out once more down the path, determined to keep straight on till she got to the hill. For a few minutes all went on well, and she was just saying, I really shall do it this time, when the path gave a sudden twist and shook itself, as she described it afterwards, and the next moment she found herself actually walking in at the door. Oh, it's too bad, she cried. I never saw such a house for getting in the way, never. However, there was the hill full in sight, so there was nothing to be done but start again. This time she came upon a large flower bed with a border of daisies and a willow tree growing in the middle. Oh, tiger lily, said Alice, addressing herself to the one that was waving gracefully about the wind. I wish you could talk. We can talk, said the tiger lily, when there's anybody worth talking to. Alice was so astonished that she couldn't speak for a minute. It quite seemed to take her breath away. At length, as the tiger lily only went on waving about, she spoke again in a timid voice, almost in a whisper. Can all the flowers talk? As well as you can, said the tiger lily. And a great deal louder. It isn't manners for us to begin, you know, said the rose. And I really was wondering when you'd speak. Said I to myself, her face has got some sense in it, though it is not a clever one. Still, you're the right colour, and that goes a long way. I don't care about the colour, the tiger lily remarked. If only her petals curled up a little more, she'd be all right. Alice didn't like being criticised, so she began asking questions. Aren't you sometimes frightened of being planted out here with nobody to take care of you? There's the tree in the middle, said the rose. What else is it good for? But what could you do if any danger came? Alice asked. It says bow-wow, cried Daisy. That's why its branches are called boughs. Didn't you know that? cried another daisy. And here they all began shouting together, till the air seemed quite full of little shrill voices. 
Silence, every one of you, cried the tiger lily, waving itself passionately from side to side and trembling with excitement. They know I can't get at them, it panted, bending its quivering head towards Alice. Oh, they wouldn't dare do it. Never mind, Alice said in a soothing tone, and stooping down to the daisies, who were just beginning again, she whispered, If you don't hold your tongues, I'll pick you. There was silence in a moment, and several of the pink daisies turned white. That's right, said the tiger lily. The daisies are the worst of all. When one speaks, they all begin together, and it's enough to make one wither to hear the way they go on. How is it you can all talk so nicely? Alice said, hoping to get into a better temper by a compliment. I've been in many gardens before, but none of the flowers there could talk. Put your hand down and feel the ground, said the tiger lily. Then you'll know why. Alice did so. It's very hard, she said, but I don't see what that has got to do with it. In most gardens, the tiger lily said, they make the beds too soft, so that the flowers are always asleep. This sounded a very good reason, and Alice was quite pleased to know it. I never thought of that before, she said. It's my opinion that you never think at all, the rose said in a rather severe tone. I never saw anybody that looked stupider, a violet said so suddenly that Alice quite jumped, for it hadn't spoken before. Hold your tongue, cried the tiger lily, as if you ever saw anybody. You keep your head under the leaves and snore away there till you know no more what's going on in the world than if you were a bud. Are there any more people in the garden besides me? Alice said, not choosing to notice the rose's last remark. There's one other flower in the garden that can move about like you, said the rose. I wonder how you do it. You're always wondering, said the tiger lily, but she is more bushy than you are. Is she like me? Alice asked eagerly, for the thought crossed her mind. There's another girl in the garden somewhere. Well, she has the same awkward shape as you, the rose said, but she's redder, and her petals are shorter, I think. Her petals are done up close, almost like a dahlia, the tiger lily interrupted, not tumbling about anyhow like yours. But that's not your fault, the rose added kindly. You're beginning to fade, you know, and then one can't help one's petals getting a little untidy. Alice didn't like this idea at all, so to change the subject, she asked, Does she ever come out here? I dare say you'll see her soon said the rose. She's one of the thorny kind. Where does she wear the thorns? Alice asked with some curiosity. Why, all around her head, of course, the rose replied. I was wondering you hadn't got some too. I thought it was the regular rule. She's coming, cried the larkspur. I hear her footsteps thump, thump, thump along the gravel walk. Alice looked round eagerly and found that it was the Red Queen. She's grown a good deal, was her first remark. She had indeed. When Alice first found her in the ashes, she'd only been three inches high, and here she was, half a head taller than Alice herself. It's the fresh air that does it, said the rose. Wonderfully fine air it is out here. I think I'll go and meet her, said Alice, for though the flowers were interesting enough, she felt that it would be far grander to have a talk with a real queen. You can't possibly do that, said the rose. I should advise you to walk the other way. 
This sounded nonsense to Alice, so she said nothing but set off at once towards the Red Queen. To her surprise, she lost sight of her in a moment and found herself walking in at the front door again. A little provoked, she drew back, and after looking everywhere for the Queen, whom she spied out at last a long way off, she thought that she would try the plan this time of walking in the opposite direction. It succeeded beautifully. She had not been walking a minute before she found herself face to face with the Red Queen, and full in sight of the hill she had been so long aiming at. "'Where do you come from?' said the Red Queen. "'And where are you going? Look up, speak nicely, and don't twiddle your fingers all the time.' Alice attended to all of these directions, and explained as well as she could that she had lost her way. "'I don't know what you mean by your way,' said the Queen. "'All the ways about here belong to me. "'But why did you come out here at all?' she ended in a kind of tone. "'Curtsy while you're thinking what to say, it saves time.' Alice wondered a little at this, but she was too much in awe of the Queen to disbelieve it. "'I'll try it when I go home,' she thought to herself. "'The next time I'm a little late for dinner.' "'It's time for you to answer now,' the Queen said, looking at her watch. "'Open your mouth a little wide when you speak, and always say, Your Majesty.' "'I only wanted to see what the garden was like, Your Majesty.' "'That's right,' said the Queen, patting her on the head, which Alice didn't like at all. "'Though when you say garden, I've seen gardens compared with which this would be a wilderness.' Alice didn't dare to argue the point, but went on. And I thought I'd try and find my way to the top of that hill. When you say hill, the Queen interrupted, I could show you hills in comparison with which you'd call that a valley. No, I shouldn't, said Alice, surprised into contradicting her at last. I can't be a valley, you know. That would be nonsense. The Red Queen shook her head. "'You may call it nonsense if you like,' she said, "'but I've heard nonsense, compared with which that would be as sensible as a dictionary.' Alice curtsied again, as she was afraid, from the Queen's tone, that she was a little offended, and they walked on in silence till they got to the top of the little hill. For some minutes Alice stood without speaking, looking out in all directions over the country.' and a most curious country it was. There were a number of tiny little brooks running straight across it from side to side, and the ground between was divided up into squares by a number of little green hedges that reached from brook to brook. I declare it's marked out just like a large chessboard, Alice said at last. There ought to be some men moving about somewhere. And so there are she added in a tone of delight, and her heart began to beat quick with excitement as she went on. It's a great, huge game of chess that's being played all over the world. If this is the world at all, you know, oh, what fun it is! How I wish I was one of them! I wouldn't mind being a pawn, if only I might join, though, of course, I should like to be a queen best. She glanced rather shyly at the real queen as she said this, but her companion only smiled pleasantly and said, That's easily managed. You can be the white queen's pawn, if you like, as Lily's too young to play, and you're in the second square to begin with. Uh, when you get to the eighth square, you'll be a queen. Just at this moment, somehow or another, they began to run.
Alice never could quite make out, in thinking it over afterwards, how it was that they began. All that she remembers is that they were running hand in hand, and the Queen went so fast that it was all she could do to keep up with her. Alice never could quite make out, in thinking it over afterwards, how it was that they began. All she remembers is that they were running hand in hand, and the Queen went so fast that it was all she could do to keep up with her. And still the Queen kept crying, Faster! Faster! But Alice felt she could not go faster, though she had not breath left to say so. The most curious part of the thing was that the trees and the other things around them never changed their places at all, however fast they went. They never seemed to pass anything. I wonder if all the things move along with us, thought poor puzzled Alice, and the Queen seemed to guess her thoughts, for she cried, Faster! Don't try to talk! Not that Alice had any way of doing that. She felt as if she would never be able to talk again. She was getting so much out of breath, and still the Queen cried, Faster! Faster! and dragged her along. Are we nearly there? Alice managed to pant out at last. "'Nearly there?' the Queen repeated. "'Why, we passed it ten minutes ago. Faster!' And she ran on for a time in silence, with the wind whistling in Alice's ears. And almost blowing the hair off her head, she fancied. "'Now, now!' cried the Queen. "'Faster! Faster!' And they went so fast that at last they seemed to skim through the air, hardly touching the ground with their feet, till suddenly, just as Alice was getting quite exhausted, they stopped and she found herself sitting on the ground, breathless and giddy. The Queen propped her up against a tree and said kindly, You may rest a little now. Alice looked round her in great surprise. Why, I do believe we've been under this tree the whole time. Everything's just as it was. Of course it is, the Queen. What would you have it? Well, in our country said Alice, still panting a little. You'll generally get to somewhere else if you ran very fast for a long time, as we've been doing. A slow sort of country, said the Queen. Now here, you see, it takes all the running you can do to keep in the same place. If you want to get somewhere else, you must run at least twice as fast as that. I'd rather not try, please, said Alice. I'm quite content to stay here, only I'm so hot and thirsty. I know what you'd like, the Queen said good-naturedly, taking a little box out of her pocket. Have a biscuit. Alice thought it would not be civil to say no, though it wasn't at all what she wanted. She took it and ate it as well as she could, and it was very dry and she thought she had never been so nearly choked in all her life. "'While you're refreshing yourself,' said the Queen, "'I'll just take the measurements.' And she took a ribbon out of her pocket, marked in inches, and began measuring the ground, and sticking little pegs in here and there. "'At the ends of two yards,' she said, putting in a peg to mark the distance, "'I shall give you your directions.' Have another biscuit? No, thank you, said Alice. One's quite enough. Thirst quenched, I hope, said the Queen. Alice did not know what to say about this, but luckily the Queen did not wait for an answer, but went on. At the end of three yards I shall repeat them, uh, for fear of your forgetting them. At the end of four I shall say good-bye. At the end of five I shall go. 
She had got all the pegs put in by this time, and Alice looked on with great interest as she returned to the tree and then began slowly walking down the row. At the two-yard peg, she faced round and said, A pawn goes two squares in its first move, you know, so you'll go very quickly through the third square. By railway, I should think, and you'll find yourself in the fourth square in no time. Well, that square belongs to Tweedledum and Tweedledee. The fifth is mostly water. The sixth belongs to Humpty Dumpty. But uh, you make no remark? I, I, I didn't know I had one to make. Just then, Alice faltered out, you should have said it's extremely kind of you to tell me all this. However, we'll suppose it's said, the seventh square is all forest. However, one of the knights will show you the way. And in the eighth square, we shall be queens together. And it's all feasting and fun. Alice got up and curtsied and sat down again. At the next peg, the queen turned again. And this time she said, speak in French when you can't think of the English for a thing. Turn out your toes as you walk. And remember who you are. She did not wait for Alice to curtsy this time, but walked on quickly to the next peg, where she turned round for a moment to say goodbye, and then hurried on to the last. How it happened, Alice never knew, but exactly as she came to the last peg, she was gone. Whether she vanished into the air, or whether she ran quickly into the wood, and she can run very fast, thought Alice. There was no way of guessing, but she was gone. And Alice began to remember that she was a pawn, and that it would soon be time for her to move. The fireplace has always played a central role in family life. For years, people sat around them, watching the little flames eat their way through small bits of anything that had been finished with and put into the grate. Fire has always held a fascination for people. It can do so very much. In the ancient past, fire was worshipped as a worthy god, but today, even having a fire as a pet has become old-fashioned. Back in the days of the Empire, everyone was at it. Houses were built with a fire kennel in every room. Why do we leave them empty and forlorn these days? Surely the vandalism in our streets would diminish a bit if there was something other than next door's fiat to set fire to. Maybe one day a fire brick will revert to being something to burn things on, rather than being the lighter sort of missile available on demolition sites with which to vent one's homeless spleen. What was it about people in the 1950s that made them take out their splendid iron chapels of burning and replace them with modern hovels of brown tile? Whatever it was, that mindless fashion is long past, but unfortunately even today the occasional fireplace and surround make it into the great dustbin in the sky by way of a skip. When going round houses looking for a new place to live, it is sensible to check that there are at least a few altars to the great god fire still resident. That way you will save a lot of time looking for one in the piles of wreckage left by home-improving builders. Today, everyone who wants to be seen as being the sort of person too laid back to need to be seen is trying to find the old style of fireplace again. The places for living that such people purchase not only lack a fireplace to replace, but haven't even need the chimney. All the same, period fittings, the vestiges of destroyed homes and gardens of the past, are now eagerly sought after to create a non-existent history for the new designer cells. 
These boxes are often built on sites modernised by the demolition of the buildings today's homeowners want to recreate. These original features can be found for sale at Camden Lock. Just about anything that is old and rare can be bought in these places. It would not be too surprising to find plastic facsimiles somewhere, slightly too small to use, made in a colour that can't be matched even with matchpots, bearing a fire hazard sticker next to the kite mark. Probably they would be on the same stalls that sell horse brasses for pubs. Anyway, few people can afford a new old fireplace, plastic or real, so it's easier and less expensive to move to a place that has never had any dealings with the up-to-the-minute facility buyers of any past fashion generation. Having found such a home, completely original in every respect, it will badly need total redecoration. The problem with an old fire in a place one would like to look new is that the Victorian splendour has often been left to moulder under several layers of yellowed paint. The front of the fireplace will be walled up with hardboard that has been left for so long that it's weaker than compressed dust. In front of this will be a gas fire that might burn the house down if you stand the smell of gas long enough to light it. As hateful as this neglect is, it is better by far than total renovation. When the previous occupant has had enough money to do real damage, some of the most disgusting of their atrocities have to stay. All too often the hearth has been removed and the gap in the wall plastered over. The edges of this bit of DIY always show up very clearly, even in the dark. The amount of work needed to correct it is just too huge. Life itself seems unimportant by comparison, so it's left for the next owner to ignore. Assuming the fireplace is still there, the main problem in redecorating it is the aged paint. The last million or so people before you who have tried the customary opening up of the hearth mostly took one tentative glance behind the hardboard and gave up. But unfortunately, enough people to cause real problems go a bit further. These more energetic sods have even tried scraping off the old paint. The fire will now have patches of cracked paint falling off in an encouraging way, tempting the new homeowner to remove the lot. After ten or so minutes' work, with the end of a spoon, all these shiftable bits will be in the hair, eyes and throats of the renovator, leaving the rest stuck solidly to the metal. At this point, any sane person would have given up and put back the hardboard, but some twits must have thought it would be a good idea to give the slowly reappearing iron a nice lick of paint. The rats. The old paint edges under the new coat are even more obvious bodge than filling the whole thing in with cement would have been. Trying to shift that lot is a job that makes putting paint on the fourth road bridge a simple matter. It will be easier to paint over the other three as well, rather than try it. So even the staunchest advocate of authenticism gives in when faced with such an unequal task and reaches for the dulux. The problem is far from solved with this cop-out. Simply buying the paint and hoping to finish the job in the afternoon is rather touching. The paint gets everywhere but the brush. Well, the bristles of the brush. That dog in the paint advert is most to blame. It's very misleading. The advertising standards people could have had a field day there. If a pot of that particular product had ever been opened anywhere near that supercilious canine, dog hair would have mixed in with the paint so fast as not to be believable. But as we all know, the camera never lies, so the dog has to be magic. It must have had a spell pot on it by the manufacturers or the RSPCA to keep the doggy free from harm. This could explain another frequent difficulty if paintbrushes have bristles made from its fur. So often the stuff slides off the brush and onto the handle, leaving the business end perfectly paint-free. 
the amateur painter does not fare as well. By then, they will be dripping with the non-drip, having found it to be non-spread. It won't drip because it won't come out of the pot, save to get out of the hands and shirt. How does the stuff get between the shoulders? Most people can't even reach there, but the paint can. By dint of keeping it long enough and using the now well-dead shirt as a replacement non-home-charmed brush, a new covering can be put onto the long-suffering ironwork. That difficulty over, a well-painted fireplace is a delight. Make sure the black bits are a real fire-brick black, or they will glow nicely red if you ever use the fire grate. Another life can seem short trying to convince people in the shop that the stuff exists, but the effort is worth it. Gloss paint could be preferred for a fire that has seen its last hot glimmer. White surround and black for the rest. A striking and fit temple to an understandable god of the Victorian house and home. One day, maybe a new generation will be flocking to Camden heliports to buy solid holograms, the very rare brown earth-tiled hearths, wondering how we could ever have been so crass as to destroy them by the thousand. Maybe today's new paint will be yellow by then, but at least the dog will be long gone. other people's pets. Animals and I do not mix well. I tend to be somewhat caustic about them on occasion, but for years I have had to live with both the good and the not-so-good, and I think I've coped quite well. This is something for me to be proud of. If ever again I come out with one of my less-than-flattering pet-directed remarks and someone says, ''Ah, you can't really mean that. How can you say something like that if you haven't even got a pet yourself?'' I have a reply. Forever in my memory there dwells a pet, and proof I can live through owning it. Being my pet can't be much fun for the animal either, but tough luck. I come first. Instances of our mutual incompatibility can come in very useful as arguments in my defence. When supporting my position against the questioning of one of this world's more willing pet owners, I now have an answer. If they should berate me for my lack of pink spectacles when observing the habits of their own particular ineffective house slave, I can go at them in a big way, knowing I am right. But this wasn't always the case. Once, on a beach, a dog got me. I was lost for words, speechless with anger. How was it possible for my world to be invaded with such disregard for my feelings? My anger flamed up, but had nowhere to go but burn within me. In those days, before I had come across well-trained pets, I thought this was a natural and unavoidable occurrence. If the same should happen today, things would be different. 
Now I have also learned that it is not the action of a heel to use natural superiority when got at in the privacy of your own holiday. I will rightly point out that I don't consider it acceptable practice to allow a small dog freedom to wander up to a perfect stranger, let alone stand by and watch it short out a very personal stereo with a measured amount of aromatic gland secretion, especially if it's delivered by urine. After this gentle riposte, I can feel quite free to throw a stone at the animal, missing deliberately, and shout and stamp about wildly by way of explaining any apparent overreaction. If that doesn't result in an abject apology coupled with a repair fee, which I would name, then the next stone would hit the true transgressor, the pet owner. It is not the animal, but the owner who is at fault. How can it be otherwise? Only we humans have a brain worth communicating with, and then only sometimes. It is a waste of time and energy trying to explain the design of a silk purse to a listener equipped only with the sow's ear. Looking at the situation from a more objective standpoint, I note that the comforts obtained from an animal are not those of the intellect. I should not then attribute any failings of intellect to the beast, but to myself. The canals are to be found at my end of the telescope. Nor should I demean the emotional makeup of others whose sole support comes from the unquestioning love of a dumber-than-usual animal. Just because I can cope without the pet's attentions is not to say the same is true of those sad unfortunates. Just that it could be. But that is their problem. Mine is their attitude rather than the animal in person. That was one in the series of Torty Talks from Simon Anthony, acting at torty.org.uk.